This is Ron Stockton. Let's talk today about Pete Seeger. Pete died on January 28, 2014. He was 94. Jane and I saw him only once. He and Arlo Guthrie came to Pine Knob in the Detroit area for an outdoor concert. What I remember most about that event was when someone shouted to Arlo to sing Alice's Restaurant. He shouted back, buy the album. That response to an admiring fan seemed a bit obnoxious, or maybe not. Pete was accused of being a red diaper baby, a communist from birth. More likely, he was a pink diaper baby. His father, a supporter of Henry Wallace in 1948, had a sympathy for the poor and oppressed. That would have been the 1920s and 1930s. He transmitted that to his son. Back in those days, sympathy for people who were poor or black passed for leftist. Now that I think of it, I guess not much has changed in that regard. Fortunately for us, Pete was born into music. His father taught ethnic musicology at Berkeley and Yale. He was particularly interested in black music. His mother was a concert violinist and taught at Juilliard. This was more broadly a very creative family. His uncle, one of the first Americans to die in World War I, was the author of the powerful poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death. I guess we could say Pete was born singing. Pete was in the Weavers, a sort of folk group. They sang protest, but I have an album of their songs, which sounds very sweet and non-controversial to me. They did On Top of Old Smokey and So Long It's Been Good to Know You. But his greatest hit during that time was Good Night Irene, Good Night Irene, Good Night Irene, Good Night Irene, I'll see you in my dreams. He adopted that song from the black songmaster Leadbelly. I also have an album of Leadbelly songs. These are those big albums that young people today call vinyl. They like to think their generation invented them, but those in my generation just sit back and chuckle. Back to Leadbelly for a minute. He became famous in prison. When the governor came for a visit, Leadbelly sang him a song. If I was the governor and the governor was me, I would write a letter and set the governor free. Somehow that worked. Pete was a modest person. In spite of all the money he must have made, he spent his whole life in a 900-square-foot cabin he built himself. Pete was in the tradition of Woody Guthrie, a populist troubadour. He sang for the people, and he thought you could use music to promote social change. Those who are younger might not be aware of the folk music protest tradition in which singers would go from place to place singing and charming us at folk music festivals or places such as Ann Arbor's Ark, for those of you who live in Michigan. They would often sing songs they had written themselves. John McCutcheon is the closest we have today to that tradition, although John is not much into protest the way Woody and Pete were. If you don't know John's amazing song, Christmas in the Trenches, you should listen to it today. It's based on a true story. Now that is an assignment. Today, listen. Pete sang protest songs, union songs, civil rights songs, and, as the Vietnam War escalated, anti-war songs. Still, In the madness of the 1950s, it did not take much to convince right-wing McCarthyite Republicans that you were a communist. In reality, Pete was in in the Young Communist League for a time before he repudiated it in the late 1940s because of Stalin's brutality. 
1955, Seeger was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, oh, what a group that was, to testify about his political views. He played rope-a-dope with them. Uh, that's Muhammad Ali's boxing technique, in case you don't know. Once he was asked whether he had been in a leftist march, he said, this sounds like asking Jesus if he was king of the Jews. That did not please the committee. He insisted on his First Amendment right to association and to hold political views. He refused to give up names and was blacklisted. That meant he was banned from radio and television. He had been a regular on the radio, so this was a blow. The ban was open-ended. It could stay in effect forever. He was also sentenced to 10 years for contempt of Congress, but he never served. A federal judge threw out the, uh, the conviction. The Weavers disappeared. That leads to what happened in 1968. The top television show in the country by far was the Sunday night program, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. I was in graduate school at the time and always used Sunday night to relax. I would spend the day on campus reading and writing papers. Then we would have homemade pizza, put Greg to bed, Ted was not yet around, and watch the Sunday night lineup. That show was our favorite. It was creative and funny. They introduced the amazing guitarist, Mason Williams, and brought the Beatles and Hey Jude to us for the first time. But Tommy Smothers had an edge. He thought there should be more serious content. In the political environment of the day, that was a risky strategy. In retrospect, 1968 was the worst year in American history, at least until 2015 or maybe 2020. The year started with the Tet Offensive, the beginning of the end for America's misadventure in Vietnam. The Viet Cong conducted a nationwide offensive against the Americans. They seemed to be everywhere. I had been mildly supportive of the war for a time, confession, but I began to have doubts in 1967. Now I realized that the game was up. I did a complete about-face. We were going to have to get out. When General Westmoreland came to Washington, he told Congress that Tet had been a great defeat for the Viet Cong. They had failed to achieve their goals and had suffered a serious military setback. That was not what we wanted to hear. Johnson had been struggling to maintain popular support for this war. He had spoken of light at the end of the tunnel and had called his critics nervous Nellies. But it was not working. At that point, the President of the United States was unable to appear in public because of anti-war demonstrations. We were losing hundreds of men every week, often 400 or more. It seemed there would be no end to this conflict, ever. And now it was getting worse. When Westmoreland asked Lyndon Johnson for an extra 200,000 soldiers to finish the job, we already had 500,000 in-country, the Vigoro hit the mixmaster, as they say. You can translate that yourself. As Eugene McCarthy declared for the Democratic nomination challenging LBJ, Bobby Kennedy entered the race. Soon Martin Luther King was assassinated, then Bobby. The cities were burning and the streets and campuses were clogged with demonstrators. Pro-war and anti-war groups often clashed. Everything seemed to be falling apart. Many students had trouble returning home, facing the wrath of their parents. In July came the catastrophic Democratic Convention in Chicago, when pro-Humphrey delegates and pro-McCarthy or pro-McGovern anti-war delegates fought bitterly. In the streets outside the convention hall, anti-war demonstrators chanted, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. 
as police bludgeoned them. Jane and I were camping in southern Illinois. We had left Greg with his grandparents. I rented a small television so I could watch the convention. We sat in horror as the events unfolded. The Walker Commission later declared that the assaults on anti-war demonstrators were led by stormtroopers in blue. What a phrase that was. The pain just kept coming on and on. There seemed to be no end in sight. The appearance of Pete Seeger on the Smothers Brothers somehow became a major political event. In retrospect, one that far exceeded the performance itself. There had been real resistance to that appearance by the suits at the network. They had vetoed it in the fall, but Tommy insisted. Pete had been creeping around the blacklist for a while, doing educational programs, for example. But this was a big deal, capital B, capital D. When Pete appeared on stage in February, he introduced us to a new song he had written just a few months earlier. As I sat there in my graduate student apartment listening, I was stunned. Could I really be hearing this on national television? I was of that generation that showed respect for the president, even if you did not like his policies. The song was called The Big Muddy. He sang it in his signature style, with his head tilted back as if he were howling out his message. To tell you why that song was so shocking, you have to remember that in that age, there was a folk music genre that was fairly mainstream. The Kingston Trio would be an example. But there was also that underground populist folk tradition that was very different. It was found mostly in small coffee houses and art houses near campuses. It was very anti-establishment, as we said at the time. Woodstock the next year was the quintessential example of that tradition. But Pete Seeger on the Smothers Brothers was a breakthrough event. His appearance on stage defied the blacklist and the restraints of the 1950s. Seeger's songs always had a double edge to them. Think of Turn, 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 or Where Have All the Flowers Gone, or If I Had a Hammer. They were so singable that even children could sing along and feel good and never realize they were deeply subversive. That night, with the Tet Offensive fresh in the headlines and the bodies piling up, this performance was an act of near-revolutionary defiance. By the end of the television season, the Smothers Brothers, the number one television show in America, had been canceled. That cancellation was a bold display of ruthless power. For those who do not know the words of that song, I'm going to read them to you, not sing them. But as soon as you finish listening, you should go to the internet and listen to Pete. That is your second assignment. Listen to this song. Do it as soon as this podcast finish, finishes. I'm not sure if it's relevant, but you might like to know that Pete served in the military for three years during the Second World War. Okay, here we go. It was back in 1942. I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river. That's how it all began. We were knee-deep in the big muddy, and the big fool said to push on. The sergeant said, Sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on. I forded this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging. We'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy, and the big fool said to push on. The sergeant said, Sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous Nelly, the captain said to him. 
All we need is a little determination. Men, follow me. I'll lead on. We were neck deep in the big muddy, and the big fool said to push on. All at once the moon clouded over. We heard a gurgling cry. A few seconds later, the captain's helmet was all that floated by. The sergeant said, turn around, men. I'm in charge from now on. And we just made it out of the big muddy with the captain dead and gone. We stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess he didn't know that the water was deeper than the place he had once been before. Another stream had joined the Big Muddy about a half a mile from where we'd gone. We were lucky to escape from the Big Muddy when the Big Fool said to push on. Well, I'm not going to point any moral. I'll leave that to yourself. Maybe you're still walking. You're still talking. You'd like to keep your health. But every time I read the papers, that old feeling comes on. We're waist deep in the Big Muddy and the Big Fool says to push on. And the Big Fool says to push on. Waist deep in the big muddy, and the big fool says to push on. Waist deep, neck deep, soon even a tall man will be over his head. We're waist deep in the big muddy, and the big fool says to push on. R.A.P. Pete Seeger, you lost more often than you won, but you never gave up.